Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. We just wanted to welcome you here to Sun Valley. We believe in growing faith and building community and in the hope of Jesus. And we are continuing our look through the Bible. We're exploring some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And through this journey, we are discovering this incredible and radical love of Jesus that is written on every single page of the Bible's history. Today, we're continuing to look through the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was an 8th century prophet who prophesied and spoke to the kings of Judah. And the book of Isaiah prophesies the Babylonian exile. It prophesies that Babylon, this nation, would come, would destroy the nation of Judah, would destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and would take many Judeans into Babylon. But it also prophesies a deliverance from exile. It prophesies the hope of a Savior to come. And so much more than just a hope for present Israel, or past Israel for us now, but present Israel of the time, the book of Isaiah also prophesies future hope for all people, not just Israel. The book of Isaiah prophesies the hope of a Messiah to come and the redemptive work of that Messiah. In this season, as we're coming up on Christmas, we're just less than seven days away, and you believe that six days from Christmas. And we get to focus on the words of the book of Isaiah. I love that we've been able to look through Isaiah through this Christmas season. And we get to look at these words and these writings as they pertain to the hope that we have in Jesus. See, Isaiah's prophecies are especially beautiful when we frame them in the context of the Christmas story. Isaiah prophesies the coming of a Savior who would take on the world's sins and bring forgiveness and deliverance. And the Christmas story is the fulfillment of those prophecies. The Christmas story is the advent, the coming of hope. It is the story of the birth of a Savior, a child born to the Virgin Mary, the infant Jesus on whom would rest the hope of the world. So today we're starting off with Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 through 7. We're reading Isaiah 49, 5 through 7. should be available on the screen for you if you want to follow along with us. And it says in verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, the Lord says, This is the servant speaking. Isaiah is speaking as if he was the servant. The servant to come, the Messiah to come is speaking. But the Lord says, verse 6, It is too small, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. For I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Holy Redeemer, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Isaiah speaks on behalf of the servant of the Lord, and this, is, this servant is the one who would come to bring deliverance to Israel. But note what God says of his own servant. In verse 6, 
He says, it is too small a thing for the Messiah to restore only Israel. He says, the Messiah would also be a light for the Gentiles. So that, I love this part, so that God's salvation would reach the ends of the earth. Here's the very first lesson for today. Our first lesson is this. God's love is bigger. God's love is bigger. See, Israel has always been God's people. They were in God's covenant. God hadn't made a covenant with other nations that we read about in the Bible. And so God was not obliged under covenantal law to save those outside of Israel. See, God had made a covenant with Abraham, his descendants with Jacob and Isaac and his descendants, all of Israel. And so according to the covenantal law, God had no obligations to save anyone else except for Israel. But we find here in Isaiah that God's love is too big to be just for the insiders. God says that his love would be too small if it were only for restoring Israel. We need to understand a bit about the nature of Israel's relationship to their God. You see, Israel at the time and before, all the time from Abraham to Moses to Joshua, all the time of the kings, Israel, they didn't have a formalized religion. Their worship of Yahweh was less a religion as it was a form of tribal worship. What I mean by this is that the people of Israel didn't worship Yahweh because that's the religion that they believed in. That's the dogmas or the doctrines that they subscribed to. They worshiped Yahweh because that was the God of their tribe. That was the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The worship of Yahweh was part of their ancestral and tribal and genetic tradition. It wasn't a religion the way that we might consider a religion. The Israelites didn't consider adding foreigners to their community. That's not what they did. They weren't out proselytizing, preaching, trying to convert people to this Yahweh religion. They weren't doing that. They weren't trying to convert people to the worship of Yahweh because it wasn't for other people. It was for their people, for Israel, for their tribe. It was a tribal worship. This thing was exclusively for Israel, for the descendants of Abraham. Their worship of Yahweh only began to become a formal religion during this time period in the book of Isaiah. This is while the Judeans were in, cap in Babylonian captivity, while they were off in a foreign nation, captured, enslaved, exiled by the Babylonians. That's when their worship of Yahweh started to become more of a religion and less of tribal worship. And so we find that this religion became named after this people of Judah, so we call it Judaism. It's not called Israelitism because it's not after Israel. It's after Judah. After Judah was enslaved and captured by the Babylonians, they began to formalize their worship. And so it was called Judaism. And so in Babylon, we begin to see a shift in, in Judah's theology, in Judaism's theology, as Isaiah gives these prophetic words from God that extends the promise beyond just Israel and Judah. And God gives this hope for deliverance for those who are captive in Babylon, to the Judeans, to the Israelites. But he also extends that messianic hope to more than just Israel and Judah. God's promise of hope is not just about healing and restoring Israel. God says himself, that would be thinking too small. God's promise of hope is far bigger than just Israel. 
It's not about tribal worship anymore. It's a religion that extends beyond tribes and beyond ancestry. It's a religion that would welcome or that should welcome and accept anyone who might come to worship this Yahweh. So God extends his promise, not just to Israel and Judah, but to all Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 6. He says, it is too small a thing for the servant to be only for Israel. He is for all Gentiles. He is to be a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the world. You see, God promises and promises this hope, an extension for all people. This is interesting. Because this includes all the people that would have enslaved and oppressed Israel at that very moment. This extension wouldn't have excluded the Babylonians. It wouldn't have excluded the Assyrians who destroyed Israel previously. It wouldn't have excluded the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians and the Medes that would have come after Babylon. It wouldn't have excluded any of them. It included all the Gentiles, including those who were enslaving and oppressing Israel at the moment. Pause and think about what that means for a minute. Think about how radical this love and this salvation of the servant of the Messiah would be. It wouldn't just be for the insiders. It would be for all peoples of the earth. That included the countless nations who had destroyed Israel and Judah. It included the nation of Babylon, who at that very moment held thousands upon thousands of Israelites in captivity. See, God's love is so much bigger than nationalistic ambitions. God's love is so much bigger than our personal sentiments and comforts. God's love extends even to those who have hurt us. God's love extends even to those whom we strongly disagree with. It extends to those whom we can't seem to get along with. God doesn't just plan on saving those that we like and are comfortable with. God's love plans to bring salvation to anyone and everyone who would welcome it. See, God extends his promise of love and salvation to more than just this small Middle Eastern tribe. It extends further than just our community right here. It extends further than our own circles. God's salvation extends to the ends of the earth. God wants his salvation to reach absolutely everyone. Because just as much as Israel needed deliverance from Babylonian captivity, the world needs deliverance from sin's captivity. We all need salvation from the effects and the consequences of our sins. God says it is too small a thing for him to save only just a few. His love extends to every corner, every crevice, every nook and cranny of the earth. God's love is bigger. I want to jump us to Isaiah chapter 56, a passage that we read last week as we explored the prophecies of the Messiah and compared them to the, the Gospels of Jesus. And I'm, ex I'm excited to explore Isaiah 56, 1 to 8, and kind of expound on, on it just a little bit, which we didn't get a chance last week. But Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, says this. This is what the Lord says. Are you listening? This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness, my justice, my goodness will soon be revealed. 
Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, the one who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. See, these verses, they're so groundbreaking. Because of the ancient laws that Israel had and were abiding by, some of these people, eunuchs and foreigners, would have been excluded from the assemblies of the Lord. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Israelites are given instructions not to include foreigners and eunuchs from their assemblies. These types of people, eunuchs and foreigners, were not allowed to gather with Israel for worship alongside the rest of the people. They were not to be included in Israel's community. Now, these verses were likely not indiscriminatory i.e. these verses did not likely apply to all foreigners and all eunuchs at all times forever. These verses likely referred to people who had castrated themselves as part of pagan ritual worship and marriages and offspring connected to idolatry. But the people of Israel, and you begin to see the shift as you read the story, the people of Israel had become very zealous, very legalistic in their keeping of the law. Not the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law. And so we see it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah where these leaders banned foreigners from worshiping with them. They banned the foreigners from taking part in the reconstruction and the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem. And they even went so far, if you read the story, they went so far as forcing the Israelites to divorce their foreign spouses and to send away their mixed children into the wilderness. They said, we don't want anything to do with them. We don't want anything to do with foreigners. If you've married a foreign spouse, you leave her. You send her away. If you have children that are mixed foreigners and Israelites, you send them away. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah were saying. They become so zealous for the letter of the law that they are sending all these people away. And, and I want to remind you that that's not something that God had instructed them to do. That's not what God had wanted them to do. And so when we read here, that God has planned salvation for both foreigners and eunuchs, we are meant to be shocked. It would have been shocking to the people of Isaiah's day hearing those words. In fact, it would have been shocking to the foreigners and the eunuchs as well. But God says, I want all people included in my assembly. And so here's our second lesson for today. Our second lesson is this. God's love is inclusive. God's love is inclusive. See, for ancient Israelites and for the ancient people of the time, lineage was so important. This idea of carrying on your family name and your family line was so crucial to them. 
It was a way of being preserved in name and in memory, but not just being preserved genetically or historically. It was like being preserved spiritually. Your ancestors, your descendants could carry on worshiping God. God would remember you in kindness as they see your children and your children's children and your children's children's children continuing to worship him. But God tells these eunuchs, these men who could not carry on a lineage, these men who could not father children, he says to them, he says, I will not leave you wanting. He says, don't complain about only being a dry tree, about being unable to bear fruit. God says this, says you're worried about your lineage, you're worried about continuing on, you're worried about being remembered. God says, I will remember you. He says, I will build a memorial, not just in Israel, not just somewhere out in the wilderness. God says, I will build a memorial in my very house, in the temple, and I will inscribe your names on that memorial so that you would never be forgotten. And every time that I go from heaven to this temple, every time I am home, every time I'm anywhere, God says, I will remember you. Can you imagine the impact that must have had on the people listening to those words to be promised that, that, that even after death, that God himself would never forget you? And then God continues, and he also makes promises to the foreigners, and he says, don't worry about being excluded. Don't say, surely the Lord will exclude me from his community. He says, no, even you foreigners are included in these promises. You are included in the covenant of salvation. This covenant was made to Abraham and his descendants, but the Israelites, they misconstrued the covenant. They misconstrued the belief, and they believed that salvation would be exclusively for the lineage of Abraham. We find that later on in the Gospels when Jesus asks them, how are you saved? And they ask, well, we're from the line of Abraham. We're guaranteed to be saved. But God is saying this. No, even foreigners, even those who aren't of the line of Abraham, even they find their home in me. God says he would bring the outcasts, the abandoned, the outsiders. He would bring them into his temple and he would accept their offering. His house would become a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israel. See, God's love is inclusive. God intended that all people would be welcomed into his family and into his community. And God says that anyone who is willing to follow his ways, anyone who is willing to maintain justice, to do what is right, to keep their hands from evil, and God says this, anyone who is willing to keep the Sabbath without desecrating it would be included into his family. See, the writer of Isaiah here is using the Sabbath as a representative or as a marker of the entirety of the commandments. When he says who keeps the Sabbath, it's not just the fourth Sabbath commandment, it's all the commandments. And so what God is really saying is that anyone who's willing to live differently, to do what is right, to shun away from evil, they would be included in my family. See, God isn't looking for people who can trace their lineage back to a certain person. God isn't looking for people who are perfect and without sin. What God is looking for is people who are willing, willing to live differently people who are willing to begin living in ways that counteract the evil that we see in the world, people who are willing to live the love that is the commandments. 
to love God and to truly love our neighbor, not just warm, passive, fuzzy feelings, but real action, real love. And I love the last portion of this text here because God promises to go even further. He says, not only have I opened up the boundaries to include the eunuchs and the foreigners, he says, I have gathered some already, but still I am gathering even more. I'm gathering even more. God's love is not by any means exclusive. Not by any means exclusive. God's love includes all people, regardless of creed, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, gender, orientation, regardless of who we are or how life circumstances try to define us. Every single person finds their home in Jesus. God's love is inclusive. Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 10. I want to take you through our last portion of the text here. Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 10 says this, starting in verse 1, says, Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled, those evil people who had destroyed the nation of Israel and Judah, will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, Jerusalem, free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter of Zion, who is now a captive. For this is what the Lord says, you were sold for nothing, but without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, at first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them, and now what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock them. And all day, all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. Verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their very own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Jesus chapter it paints for us a picture. It paints for us a picture of a foreign army who has marched through God's holy city. It paints for us a picture of people who have come in and defiled, destroyed the city walls, who've destroyed and sacked God's home, the temple, the pride and joy of Jerusalem. Picture it with me. The city it lays in ruins. There's rubble everywhere. Smoke billows up in the distance as your family and your friends are led away in chains. And you tug at your neck, at the heavy shackles that are digging into your shoulders and your jaw, and, and, and there is no hope. There is no coming army that can save you, for all your allies have abandoned you. And as the sun begins to creep up over the ruined city walls, you hear a shout. It's the watchmen on the wall. 
They shout for joy for they see a runner, a runner far off in the distance coming over the mountains. And this runner brings good news. He brings word that God has heard your cries. He brings word that God's kingdom is coming to deliver you. And the chains begin to loosen. The enslaved are free and the exiles begin to return. And you shout for joy. And you're singing and you're praising and you're weeping. And in this cacophony of praise, you even hear the ruins, the rocks that has come. Verse 7 says, how beautiful. Our final lesson today is this, God's love. They've experienced the greatest and the most devastating destruction it's in its entire history. Its holy city, its holy temple have been desecrated and laid and in them. They felt as if God had forgotten them. They were in desperate need of hope, of some good news. And that's what the chapter sees. Watchman on the wall sees a runner coming from a far distance. And this runner brings good news. This news the runner brings is that salvation has come to God's people. The news are the feet that bring good news. These are the feet of a runner carrying a message from a far off distance. These are feet that are how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. These callous and blistered and dirty feet are beautiful because we see this word good news used significantly somewhere else in the Bible. We see it in the naming of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are called the Gospels. And when we read the word gospel, it really simply means good news. I invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. You see, the, the reason that the word gospel is connected to Jesus is because the story of Jesus is good news. In fact, it's the best news. It's the hope that we've all been desperately longing for. It is the news that the chains of oppression and sin are to be shaken off. It is the news that the lives destroyed by sin are to be restored. It is the news that the ruins of our walls, of our lives are to be rebuilt. It is the news that we are to be redeemed through the life of Jesus. You see, the love that was poured out for us on the cross, that is the gospel. It is the evangelion. It is the good news. You see, God's love is good news. And the good news is that God's love is bigger. See, it is too small a thing for Jesus to be only for Israel. Jesus is a light for the Gentiles so that God's salvation might reach every corner of the earth. God's love is not constrained by our conceptions, by our notions, by our prejudices. God's love is big enough for every single person to find themselves in it. God's love is big enough for even the worst of sinners. It's big enough for you and for me. God's love is big enough for our captors, for our oppressors, for those who have hurt us. God's love is not limited by who we believe is worthy of love, but rather his love is so big that it covers the whole earth. See, the good news is that God's love is inclusive. Every person finds a home in God's family. To those who feel broken, God brings healing. To those who feel hopeless, God brings hope. To those who feel cast out, God welcomes you into his family. To those who feel worthless, God declares you worthy. 
God promises that he will never forget you. That you are written on a a memorial in his very house. That not a day goes by where he does not think of you. Regardless of what life has handed you. Regardless of where, where you're from or how you identify. You are included in God's community. God's love is good news. And just when we thought that we had lost all hope. Hope comes on the horizon. The Messiah comes bringing the best of news, that God reigns, that salvation has come. Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, we can be messengers. We can be those messengers in a world longing for hope. Our feet may be calloused, cracked, blistered, caked in dirt. We might be messed up, sinful, and imperfect, but our feet are beautiful when they carry the good news, the message of salvation, the hope of Jesus. You see, the good news is Jesus. How beautiful are the tiny feet of the babe wrapped in cloths, the baby Jesus laying in a manger, the feet of God in flesh, the coming of the Messiah. How beautiful are the nail-pierced feet of the crucified Jesus. The one whose death meant redemption and salvation for all mankind. You see, hope is here. Good news is here. The good news is that Christ the Savior is born. The good news is that Jesus has risen. The good news is here. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet that bring good news. Amen.